0: Hello and welcome to episode 120 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Rob Arthur. Rob is a writer at Baseball Prospectus. You can give him a follow on Twitter at no underscore little underscore plans. Rob, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me back on. Rob, we are starting to see some trends shape up this season. And one of the things that you've been researching over the last really three or four years is the juice baseball. Rob Manfred seemed to be denying that the ball was ever manipulated, and then he commissioned a report that confirmed that the ball was manipulated or changed in some way, and he still seems to be denying it, but there seems to be more evidence than ever that the balls are juiced. What is going on with the balls this year?
1: This year, um, we've, we've used uh, the StatCast system to measure the air resistance of the baseballs, and what we found is that the Air resistance is now lower even than it was in 2017, which was the record-breaking year in terms of home runs, when all sorts of uh, marks were kind of shattered. And so, there's definitely something going on with the baseball this year. What the what that commission that you mentioned found was that the air resistance of the baseballs was down in 2017, and so that they they said um, in their own words essentially that. Um, the air resistance was to blame for all the extra home runs. It wasn't the launch angle revolution. It wasn't uh, players getting stronger. It wasn't global warming. It wasn't any of the other explanations people had come up with. It was really down to the baseball itself. But the problem that they had is that they couldn't explain why the air air resistance of the baseball was different. So they can measure the physical property, but there's a lot of things that contribute to air resistance, like the seams, the surface of the baseball, um, even how centered the mass is within the baseball, that affects air resistance. And they couldn't narrow it down to one of those things and then go backwards to figure out what changed in manufacturing to create that. So we were still sort of left with a mystery and, and that's the same thing that's happening this year. We know that air resistance is different. We know that it's the lowest it's been on record. Um, and we know that home runs are up to the highest they've ever been as a result. But we can't say exactly why that's happening. Now, I know there's some research coming down the pike um, from some great people like Meredith Wills. um, And so I expect that we will have an explanation sooner rather than later. But for now, we're sort of left with a partial explanation for why home runs
0: are up. I think the reason why Rob Manford has taken a lot of heat for this is because he's saying things that we know aren't true, though he seems to have come around to it a little bit about the ball. But I think that his confusion with the issue is in part because I don't think he ordered these changes. I don't think he specifically said to the manufacturer, the ball needs to be tighter or smaller or whatever it may be. I think that this just happened and he's unsure why it's happening too.
1: Yeah, that's totally believable to me. I mean, one of the things that I found out in doing all the research has been that they you know, the manufacturing process is incredibly tightly controlled. Um. So Rawlings, the manufacturer of the baseball, baseball takes a lot of care to make sure that the baseballs uh, stay the same, and they they actually monitor the, com- them coming off of the assembly line. There was, however, this big blind spot in their manufacturing, which was they weren't measuring the air resistance of the baseball. And it's totally believable to me that, as a result of not measuring that, they didn't notice when it had changed. And it could have changed because of one of probably a dozen or two dozen different um, slight manufacturing tweaks that they might not have even thought would would produce any change whatsoever. It just happened to end up reducing the air resistance enough to spike home runs by 30% in the league. And I think the same thing could could be happening this year. But I would say that one of the key recommendations of the commission – was that Rawlings start monitoring the air resistance. So while it was more believable in 2015, 2016, 2017, that this was happening by accident, this year, you know, it could still be an accident, but it's more the, the sort of a question of intention is a little bit shadier here because um, Manfred certainly had enough information after the commission published the report that he could have started monitoring the air resistance. He could have delved into the assembly line manufacturing and tried to figure out what was different. And at least uh, according to what he said, he didn't do that. So if air resistance changed again, and it seems to have, and that increased home runs again, um, then he, I think, bears at least some of the blame. Maybe it was uh, sort of because he was being willfully ignorant as opposed to like consciously ordering changes to the baseballs. But I think that there is, uh, it's not as cut and dry as it was before that this could just be an industrial manufacturing accident.
0: How far in advance are the balls made for the season?
1: We don't know the answer to that. I know that it's you know at least a few months because uh, you know balls are ready for opening day and that, it takes a while to manufacture baseballs. Um, these baseballs are hand stitched, so uh, it's really a lot of manual labor that goes into it. It's not just a, a bunch of machines on an assembly line. Um, so I, I don't know the the answer there, but I know it's quite a while in
0: advance. And I ask that because. I think that's interesting to find out, like how long these balls that they're that, that they're using in these games in may have actually been around. But it's also interesting because this home run explosion started in the middle of 2015, I believe. It started after the All Star break in 2015, and that's to me one of the most interesting things about this is it came mid season,
1: right? Which which helped us really rule out a lot of other possibilities. Like one of the things that people were concerned about, and rightly so is that maybe there was a new kind of performance-enhancing drug that was helping players just hit the ball harder. Well, if it happens in the middle of the season, then that's extremely unlikely and synchronized in the middle of the season, then that's extremely unlikely to be the case. It's not as though every good hitter suddenly decided to start taking the same drug on the same day um, in the middle of the baseball season. So that was a, that was a remarkable sort of timing thing. And, and it also accords with it being a baseball issue because um, – Typically, you know, this, it varies team by team, but I think typically at least some teams I've heard um, tend to re-up their stock of baseballs around the all-star break. And it makes sense. That's kind of the midpoint of the season. So if a, if a manufacturing defect was introduced and a lot of teams simultaneously bought a new batch of balls to be delivered at around that time, then it makes sense that um, all of a sudden we'd see a, a relatively rapid change in, in the home run environment from those new baseballs getting introduced into the league
0: the higher levels of the minor leagues started using the same batch of balls that the major league players and teams use. And what did we see with that happen this year in the minor leagues?
1: Yeah, so it's uh, just two leagues in AAA. Um, But what's been remarkable is that going from the old minor league ball to the new major league ball, home runs have increased, I think, by 50% is the most recent count. And you're already dealing, especially in the Pacific Coast League, with a lot of ballparks that are at high altitude, a lot of ballparks that are warmer, and both those factors already contribute to high home runs. So to see it go up by a further 50 percent, some pitchers in the minors are, are really getting wrecked, unfortunately for them. It can't be good for their confidence to be dealing with this uh, much more lively ball now. But it's, it's another you know, yet another data point that shows that these new baseballs are obviously something different
0: from what they were before. This is something that I know Ben and Sam have talked about on Effectively Wild. It's something that, I, you know, I I remember reading in Dave Cameron pieces and in Jeff Sullivan pieces, but given that the balls are affecting everyone, given that there's more home runs being hit than ever, why aren't we seeing more people challenge 60 or 70 home runs? It seems to be spread out more, but we're not seeing that home run chase like we did in the 90s when there was a... um, Possibly a juice ball era, but certainly a juice player era as well.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things that I think is so interesting about this current era. And if you do a little historical analysis, there have been a few times in baseball's history where MLB has actually admitted to the baseball being changed. There were some supply issues at one point, um, I believe around World War II, where they switched um, the uh, yarn that went into the ball. There have been a couple of other times. And if you look at those times and you compare to the steroid era – it's a very different spectrum of changes in home run rates that occur. So when the baseball itself changes, it kind of tends to move everyone's home run rate in tandem simultaneously to, to nearly the same extent. What happened in the steroid era was like a whole different issue. Um, it, it wasn't that everyone was getting the same boost. It was that some players were getting these absolutely insane, inhuman boosts to their home run rate, and other players were seeing barely any change. And there's a, you, know, it's, it's, you never want to do it for any individual player, but when you look at the spectrum of outliers that was happening in the steroid era, where some players were getting up to 60 and 70 home runs and a lot of players weren't seeing their home run rates move, um, it's clear there that probably there was some impact of performance-enhancing drugs that some players were taking or some players were gaining more efficacy from taking and other players may not have been. Um, and that's, you know, so different from what we're seeing now. Um, really nobody is getting the kind of boost that some of, the, um, pr- some of the steroid era hitters got. And that's, you know, one of those clear markers that what we're dealing with here is a baseball issue itself and not, uh, you know, not performance enhancing drugs, not one of the other factors that can selectively influence some players but not others.
0: Major League Baseball announced that they are replacing their StatCast system, and I'm curious why. What is StatCast missing that Major League Baseball is hoping that their new system will capture?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I think that we don't really know the answer because the full uh, scope of um, StatCast data has not been released to the public. So um, at least in the public domain, we're not aware of all the different possible metrics that they may be tracking. Um, We only get this tiny little slice, and it's still an extremely useful slice, don't get me wrong. Things like exit velocity and launch angle, incredibly helpful. But um, we don't know what other issues StatCast may be having behind the scenes. In the publicly available data, it's clear that StatCast, when it came out, really struggled to measure pitch location and some other aspects of pitch break, for example, um, as accurately as the PitchFX system before it. Um, so it's possible that this is a reaction to those issues that have to some extent continued. Um, it's also possible that it's because of other things going on behind the scenes in that data that we don't we don't get access to. You know maybe there are inaccuracies there. Maybe there are problems. Um, you know maybe maybe they just think it's time for a, a, you know a new system that can boost you know or can boast more robust capabilities. It's hard to say because they haven't really released a detailed rationale. Um, But the new system is certainly different. It's optical-based instead of radar and optical-based. So it's using actual cameras to um, look at individual players and the baseball itself and track everything on the field in the same way. Whereas the StatCast system um, used radar to primarily track the baseball and then used cameras to track the players on the field. There was some, um, some fusion of those two, but... Uh, by and large, it had two separate systems, and now they'd be going to a single, only camera-based system. So uh, I'm really excited to see what it can produce, but um, you know, I'm not sure that the public is going to get access to all of that. And I'm not sure that we'll ever find out why the switchover happened.
0: Well, my thought is I remember talking to Harry Pavlidis last year, and he was talking about the possibility of robot umps or at least some sort of mechanism in assisting umpires that Statcast does miss pitches, not a lot, but it's, you know, 1% or maybe a little bit less than that. And I wonder if this new system is designed to not miss any pitches and that going towards robot umps is actually something that they're leaning towards. And this is a push to do that.
1: Yeah, I would not be surprised either. I mean, certainly the introduction of the robot umps in the Atlantic League as one of the proposed rule changes that they're sort of trying there or doing experiments on there. Um, suggests that they are interested in maybe seeing how it will work at least. Um, So it it wouldn't surprise me at all if this is part of the long-term endgame. I should mention, too, that the new system has 12 cameras, so it's potentially more robust uh, compared to a single radar tracking pitches. But we don't really know and we won't know until we actually get the data off of that. Um, But, you know, you can imagine with 12 different vantage points as opposed to just one potential point, um, there might be less loss of tracking.
0: How will the new system get rolled out? It can't. I would imagine it all has to be done at every park at the same time. You can't have some parks on StatCast and some on the new system, can you?
1: Yeah, so it's uh, scheduled to be installed at all 30 major league parks by the All-Star break of this year. And if that sounds fast to you, that's incredibly, ridiculously, uh, just amazingly quickly. And uh, it's led to some concerns, I think rightly so, that they could have difficulties making the installation um, work on time. And then it's supposed to go into operation um, for the beginning of next year. So they really only have a few months to get everything installed in the parks, um, work out any kinks, figure out what its capabilities are, and then have it ready and operating and producing the same kinds of metrics with the same kinds of accuracy. As we become used to, like pitch pitch speed, pitch location, um, even launch angle and, and exit velocity, and all those other things. Not to mention all of the possibly dozens of other things that the system may provide to uh, teams and to the uh, to baseball itself, but not to the public. So there's really, you know, just a tremendous amount of uh, work that they have to do. And part of the story that I wrote was that. Um, it seems like that is a tall order. And in the past, when we've seen tracking systems get installed, typically the first year is uh, often a little bit um, difficult, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, Sometimes, even to the extent that the data that's coming out that first year, it borders on unusable. So I hope that's not what we'll see with the new system. But uh, if history is any guide, then there might be some significant issues next year in terms of the metrics that we become used to.
0: That's such an aggressive timeline. It does make me wonder if just the installing of the new system will mess up some of the cameras in place with the old system while that's happening. I, I feel like they might end up compromising some of their data from this year as well.
1: Yeah, that's something that we'll have to uh, sort of keep our eye on and, and keep track of. Um, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely a possibility. I don't I don't know the specifics of how and where the new cameras will be installed or um, you know, what the old system was and whether there might be, you know, the same, they might be taking up the same location or any, any of that information. And it's not really going to get publicly installed. So uh, publicly released that information. I mean, well, we'll just have to kind of keep track and, and keep our eye on the data. Um, I guess the time to really pay attention will be in the second half of the year. So if you see some sudden changes happening around the All-Star break, then we'll have at least a possible explanation for why.
0: Some trends that we've seen emerge so far this season. You've written about that starters are performing better than relievers this year. Why is that happening?
1: Yeah, so that's a really good question. I'm not sure I know the answer, but I do know that it's really historic and surprising. So the last time this happened with starters performing better than relievers was in the 70s, uh, which was quite a while ago, and relievers were really used very differently then. I think that there is probably some relationship to the fact that Relievers are getting used a lot more now, and they're being called on in ways that are um, more uncertain and in some ways almost starter-like, in the sense that they're called at different times in the game. It could be almost any time, and they're called on for an indeterminate length of the outing. So if you think about the advantages that relievers have over starters, one is that typically, at least in the old era of like a one-inning closer, for example, they knew that, that they only had to throw maybe 20 max, 30 pitches and then they were gonna get out of there. And so they could really put everything they had into those pitches. And if you compare that to what a starter has to deal with, they might go from anywhere anywhere from, let's say, 80 pitches to, in the old days, up to 120. So they had to kind of leave some in reserve when they, were, when they were throwing. And so when you think about how those changes have, the changes to reliever usage might be impacting things, if you're asking someone to come in at any time in the game, potentially, for any amount of innings, potentially, um, then, and you're you're that reliever that's, that gets called upon, you're not so sure anymore that you can give it your all uh, for the first 10, 20 pitches, because you might have to go another couple innings after that. And so maybe uh, one hypothesis that I think is supported at least in part by the velocity data is that uh, relievers are sort of holding back and not not throwing as much max effort as they were before when they were reliably going for one inning and one inning only. Um, And meanwhile, starter velocities have continued to rise as as has been a trend for at least the last 20 years. Um, So I think that it may have something to do with the way that relievers are being used more uncertainly now and the way that uh, they're called upon uh, sort of uh, for these indeterminate length outings in particular. So um, it's certainly an interesting thing, and it points to this, I think, this long-term trend that we're seeing where relievers and starters are almost sort of converging. There was this article written by Tom – I'm blanking on his last name – Milwaukee Brewers uh,
0: columnist.
1: There you go. So um, he wrote a great column about the notion that uh, pitchers are sort of slowly – morphing into out getters was his term which is not a term that I love but the idea is that relievers and starters those two classes are becoming sort of outmoded designations what we have now are guys that go out and they try and get get hitters out regardless of when they're called upon how they're called upon or for how long it's just the objective is to strike the batter out or get them to you know hit a hit a slow be- uh, ground ball and that's what we're that's what they're going to do and so once, when you have that sort of convergence of the two traditionally distinct roles, then it makes sense that their performance is going to converge as well. And so where before these uh, ace relievers had a huge ERA advantage, that has sort of sunk back. And I think in the long, in the long run, we're going to see um, the starters and the relievers looking more and more like each other in a lot of different respects. In terms of the velocity they throw, the offerings they throw. Um, the length of time they go out there and so on. And it's eventually just going to be a general sort of pool of guys, of pitchers who guys who try and get hitters out um, regardless of what role they have. And so I'm sort of um, hesitant to, uh, to say whether that's going to be a good thing or not for baseball, but I think it is obviously, and obviously front offices have decided that it is sort of an optimal move to move, uh, pitchers into this, into these more amorphous
0: in-between roles. And that strategy is eventually going to create havoc with record books and what to do with pitchers when it comes to Hall of Fame consideration. I think this next generation of pitchers, um, sort of like headlined by Blake Snell and these young guys who are under 25, we're going to have a very different standard for what a Hall of Famer is with these guys, and we're going to have to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think to some extent that, that trend has been unfolding for some time. I mean, you look at a guy like Zach Grinke, who, in my opinion, is unquestionably one of the greatest pitchers of his generation. And if you actually look at like his Hall of Fame, like his uh, Jaws statistics, for example, which was come up with uh, by Jay Jaffe for, for measuring whether a player is worthy of the Hall of Fame, his Jaws score is actually kind of not that impressive. Um, whereas if you had asked me just as a fan who's watched most of his career— I think he's a no-doubt, you know, should be probably first ballot. He's really one of the greatest pitchers of his generation. So if he's getting a, sort of a marginal Hall of Fame score, then that points to the fact that pitchers have already, their more, their roles have been changing for the last 20 years. Um, they're, they've already, with starters in particular, they're being asked to go fewer innings um, and pitch a, a bit less than they used to. And the cost the cost of that for them is that they are not accruing the counting stats that they used to get regularly and so there's already kind of a, a impact on the record books, and I think that's only going to grow more extreme. Like you said, the the Blake Snells of the world, they're going to come up with, um, when they retire, by the time they retire, they're going to have a resume that looks just totally unlike anything we were used to in the past, and it'll be very difficult to judge uh, whether they are Hall of Famers in comparison to all of baseball history. I think we'll have to more and more look at sort of what they were compared to the generation they came up with. How do they compare to the other you know, 10, 20, 50 pitchers that were good at the time that they were good.
0: In some other trends in the most recent Sports Illustrated, Tom Verducci had a piece looking at some of the things that are unfolding today, and he had a graphic in the article comparing some trends of what's gone up since 2015, which of course is the year where the balls changed midway through, and what's gone down since then. Uh, Runs have gone up, home runs have gone up, Walks have gone up. Strikeouts have gone up. Full counts have gone up. And breaking pitches have gone up significantly. What's gone down? Balls in play. Hits. Singles. Batting average. Batting average of balls in play. Balls in play percentage. And fastball usage. That's really interesting to me that we're seeing such a steep decline in fastball usage. Why are we seeing more breaking balls thrown over fastballs? That's a great question.
1: I think part of it is that we have this new ability to quantify breaking balls with the StatCast data spin rate um, and, the <clears throat> and the other metrics that have come out of TrackMan um, that we didn't have before. So teams are now able to coach their pitchers to um, better use their breaking balls to make them break more. And that's actually what I saw in a recent article, the, the degree of, for example, curveball break, that's increased quite substantially in the last few years. And that might be partially a result of that coaching. It might be partially a result of teams sort of picking up on players who have really great curveballs um, earlier in their careers and promoting them to the majors without maybe an excellent fastball. Because they're able to measure that breaking stuff and say, oh, this is this is really good. This is the same caliber as the type of guys in MLB already. And this could get hitters out. Um, so I think those are all factors. Um and the other thing that I want to point out here is that all of these trends tend to be cyclical. Um, so there's trends in pitch location, for example, it went up or went down for a while, uh, throwing closer to the ground for a while, and then back up. Um, there are also trends in pitch usage. There tends to be just this kind of cyclical um, sort of gradual change that occurs over the course of years, where hitters get used to a certain sort of spectrum of offerings, and they get used to a certain set of locations, and they get used to a certain strategy. And pitchers, in turn, they have to modify their strategy so that they're attacking the hitters in a way that they're not used to. And since the hitters are constantly sort of tracking what the pitchers are doing, um, there just becomes this gradual arms race that's unfolding and unfold tends to unfold on the scale of a few years at a time. And I wonder if that's not at least part of the explanation for what we're seeing here, where breaking breaking balls are up, and I think there's good reason to believe that they genuinely are better now than they used to be. But um, there may also be some impact from the fact that breaking balls were just sort of less fashionable before and uh, pitchers realized that they could get more mileage out of them. And in five years, perhaps as breaking balls rise again, um, hitters will get more used to them and, and we'll go back to more of a fastball-centric league.
0: I think that's in play and I think that's accurate. But what I think is also happening is that we're seeing pitchers not afraid to throw breaking balls on what were traditional fastball counts, those 3-2 or 2-2 counts where it was sort of the traditionally the pitcher would lay in a fastball. Pitchers are not afraid to throw those breaking balls anymore.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I I think that's probably part of it. And um, I would also say that that could also be a a factor or or affected by some of the new tools for measuring um, the effectiveness of pitches that that we've seen come out in the last few years. Um, It might just be that traditional pillars of traditional baseball wisdom like that get challenged a little bit more and and pitchers are a little bit more willing to go against that um, given sort of evidence and arguments to the contrary from um, things like stat gas.
0: Attendance is down again and obviously owners are losing some revenue with the attendance being down. However, they've put all of their emphasis on TV and rightfully so that's where so much of their money is coming in. However, they need to realize this too. Seeing empty parks is bad television. It looks awful on television. And part of the reason why you watch is you want to be able to capture the crowd. And when the crowd is into a sporting event, it's great. When people are just sitting there on their phones, it's unwatchable. They need to do something to fix the attendance problem. What can they do?
1: Yeah, so first of all, I agree with you uh, very much there. I think there's also a point to be made about sort of creating new baseball fans, right? I think uh, like a lot of people, my first experience at the ballpark was going with my dad to a major league game, and it was sort of indelibly burned into my brain. And I'm not going to say it made me a baseball fan for life or anything like that, but the fact that I always have that memory to lean back on and to think about when I think about baseball games – um, is no doubt uh, part of the appeal for me and for, I think, many other people. So how do they fix it? Um, that's a great question. I'm not sure there's a, a certain answer at this point, in part because we don't know why attendance is down. There are a lot of competing hypotheses. Um, you, we've talked before in the earlier segment about um, all the trends that are going on in baseball, the trend toward fewer balls in play, uh, more strikeouts, more home runs as well. Um, but it's possible that the way that baseball is evolving just in terms of the substance of the game is turning people away from it. You know, there's an argument from a lot of, I think it's typically made by non-baseball fans that the game itself is boring because there's less action on the field than some other sports. Um, I don't know if that's objectively true or not, or even how to objectively measure that, but, um, certainly it's possible that with the trend towards, uh, fewer, uh, towards fewer run scoring events. Or potentially run scoring events, that might be part of it. Um, Another factor, I think, uh, in in my personal pet hypotheses that I've been writing about and and will continue to be writing about, is I think that there is uh, this effect from non-contending or tanking teams that I think really turns fans off. So um, we've seen in the last few years in particular that some teams have decided that in order to compete for a championship, they need to go through a prolonged, uh, series sometimes two, three, four years of being really, really bad so that they can kind of accrue enough draft picks and enough, um, <clears throat> enough assets to be competitive again. And because they're sort of not making an effort in those years, I think it just turns a lot of fans off because why bother showing up to a ball game when you know the team isn't even trying to win that year? They're, they're really just trying to build up strength for a future run at the championship. And there's some circumstantial evidence. I think there's some good attendance-based evidence that um, when teams tank, they lose fans not only in the year that they're tanking, but they lose fans going forward for at least three years after that. So those fans that don't show up in the year when they're bad, they don't just instantly come back when the team starts being good again. They ha- they kind of have to uh, be reminded that the baseball team is there and uh, sort of fall in love with the sport again, I think, to some extent. And so I, I personally think that there's... Uh, there's an impact from tanking. And I think that there's, there's uh, developing evidence that there, that probably is, is there. I have a story coming out on Baseball Perspectives soon about um, also how this current era of extremely tanking teams has resulted in the playoff odds kind of being set earlier than they used to be. So this year, for example, we have more teams with 0% win- World Series win probability according to Baseball Prospectus's projection system called PICOTA than we have at any time in the last six years. So essentially the entire bottom third of the, of the league at this point in the year, and re- reminder, we're only two months in, less than two months in, the entire bottom third of the league, you could just sort of cancel their season. They're not making the World Series. Um, it doesn't really matter what else happens. It doesn't matter how well they play. Uh, really, unless they suddenly turn into some incredible team or you know uh, trade for a bunch of all-stars, they have no shot. Um, so when you have that happening earlier and earlier in the season, and you have the kind of uh, uh, slim candle of fan expectation going out, you know, in mid-May, then I think that it's reasonable that fans sort of uh, decide that they're not that interested in going to uh, baseball games for a team that really has no no hope or no prayer of uh, of really con- contending for the World Series. So those are two possible things. I think there's also kind of generally a, a culture clash between. MLB and the young fans Um, we saw this unfold partially with like the let the kids play marketing campaign and then what happened immediately afterwards with Tim Anderson and his bat flip and then getting disciplined ostensibly for using uh, the n-word but uh, probably possibly I should say in part for that same bat flip Um, so MLB has this kind of kind of schizophrenic approach where on the one hand they want more emotion in the game they want the players to be Sort of superstars and 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 notable and emotional in the games in their own right, and at the same time they're going up against a baseball culture within within the game that is uh, often strongly against that, and in particular for players of color. And I, I can see if you're a fan, you might you might get excited about letting the kids play, and then you see that someone you know one of the best players in the game right now gets suspended for doing exactly what the marketing campaign suggests. Um, that might turn you off. So. Uh, I do think there's like a broader cultural issue, and that also extends, I think, to the to the league's social media, and what they've done with that. Sometimes clamping down on, uh, in particular, minor league highlights. Um, it's really tough to see what they're thinking there, um, because those highlights are really there to get people inspired and engaged in the game. And so, not not allowing them to be disseminated, um, you know, you weren't going to sell that highlight for five dollars or anything. You know, that was, it was either going to be free or people weren't going to watch it. And in this case, they seem to they seem to have decided that people shouldn't watch these exciting minor league plays, um, even though I think it would kind of galvanize a lot of people's interest, especially in players um, that are that are going to be great in the next few years. So I think there's a whole constellation of possible factors, and we haven't been able to really disentangle which one is is really driving the attendance decline. And as a result, we can't really say you know what the what the remedy is. But it, it's very clear to me that MLB needs to do something if they don't. You know, if they want to sort of reverse this.
0: I completely agree with that. That will conclude our baseball chat, but not the conversation in general. For those people who are interested in Game of Thrones, Rob and I are going to do a little Game of Thrones chat here, and we are going to have spoilers, lots of spoilers. So if you do not want to hear anything about this season or the last season or the series in general, now you can turn off. If you do want to hear about Game of Thrones, please keep listening. And I want to start with Game of Thrones just in general, Rob, your thoughts on the finale and this season in general.
1: So I've been disappointed. I've been watching since the first season, um, and I haven't read the book, so that that should be a caveat here. Uh, I know that there are people that are much more into the, the universe than I am, but I've been a longtime fan of the TV show, and I, I've been almost disappointed from the very start of the season. Um, I thought that... Um, it was a really tall task that they laid out for themselves in terms of uh, ending all the different storylines, all the many different characters. Um, bringing all of that to a satisfying conclusion is almost Herculean. Um, but they really didn't help themselves with some of the way that they designed this final season in terms of having six episodes and then how they spent the time in those six episodes. I thought that relatively little occurred in the first two episodes. And then um, there were the two you know epic battle scenes that sort of moved did most of the plot movement um in terms of advancing the characters forward Uh, but in between those two battle scenes and and in the final episode as well there was just really relatively little happening Um, they seemed to want to sort of glory in the uh cinematography and the special effects that they built and i can understand that on the one hand you probably spent a lot of money you you thought these shots out really well at the same time um, if you're only gonna give yourself six season uh, six episodes and to wrap up all of these you know dozens of characters then you really have to make every second count and I don't think they did that in this final season and as a result people are really unhappy um, not terribly surprisingly um, I, I'm not at the lower end I don't think that they you know that this ending was catastrophic or anything I thought the final episode was fine not great but fine um, and I thought the final season was bad but not you know just, Uh, not abhorrent not not i'm not outraged like some some game of thrones fans um but i definitely think they could have done it a lot better and and they were harmed to a large extent by their own choices i think
0: yeah and i think that this season was okay the people trying to sign a petition to have them remake these 20 million dollar episodes are delusional that's like the worst of people people are fixated on the coffee cups and the water bottles and all these things that don't ultimately matter i think that I try when I'm consuming anything, television or movies or whatever it is, to not become the logic police. But this season of Game of Thrones, especially the last of the Starks episode, which is episode four, after which happened after the big Night King battle. And I think the first half of that episode where they were sort of burying the fallen and then celebrating the victory was very good. But the problem and so much of the problems about this season came with the last half of that episode. When they went to King's Landing immediately, there were no scouts. She lost the dragon. There were too many logical problems within that 30 minutes. How did Masendrei get captured? What happened? Cersei had her army. Why didn't she take shots at people when everybody was in front of her? Why didn't Khaleesi try and burn everybody down then? Why didn't the Hound have the conversation he had with Arya at that moment instead of the finale? There were too many why didn't they do this in that last half hour that it created chaos and things did fall apart a little bit from there.
1: Absolutely. I agree with that. I think there's, there's been a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of great stuff written about the failures of this final season. I think a lot of it boils down to there was this big shift in how the show was written, I think, from the first seven seasons of it and this final season. Um, In the first seven seasons of it, I always felt like the characters were sort of at the mercy of these bigger, uh, Uh, sort of trends and issues that were sort of of happening to them. And all the characters could do was react how best they could under the circumstances and deal with whatever was sort of coming at them. Um, Whether that was the Long Night or the White Walkers or these uh, sort of broader uh, the Dothraki horde, all these different sort of things were sort of thrown at them and they had to just react. In the final season, it felt like um, and this I think there's a, an element of truth here it felt like the showrunners decided that the characters had to get to a certain ending point maybe it was the ending point that George R. R. Martin wrote for them and so they, they really had to you know meet that but essentially their task was to get them to that point without really thinking about what was believable for the characters to be dealing you know or what what they should be doing under the certain circumstances and and um, and I think that uh, that's just – that's why I think this season felt like such a betrayal for so many fans. Because they were used to they were used to seeing these these characters behave one way. And then that all sort of got thrown out the window in the final season in the interest of getting the plot to the point that it had to be. Um, so that was, I think, disappointing to see. I mean that, that moment you mentioned where they're out uh, in front of the wall with Cersei. I thought that was just such a perfect example of this. Because Cersei is not an honorable person. You know, she's, she's many times before on the show – um, done underhanded sneaky things. And so why in that moment, when she has victory in her grasp and she's up against a superior opponent, why wouldn't she just go ahead and shoot them? Um, it, it really makes no sense for her character. And so when you look at that and you're, you're a Game of Thrones fan and you've been sticking with Cersei for so long and you know her in and out... Um, and you look at, and you see that happening. It really does prompt this logical thing. You know, you don't have to be thinking too hard about it. You, you're just sort of like, why is she not doing the obvious Cersei thing that she would be doing here? Um, and so that's why I think that people are really upset about this, because it feels like the characters that they had grown to love have been sort of taken away from them in the interest of wrapping the show up and bringing it to what I think a lot of people rightly view as kind of a premature conclusion.
0: Yeah, and I agree with that, and we are going to get sequels and spin-offs, and there's like five Game of Thrones-related shows in development. Not all of them will stick, but there's going to be a lot more of this world to be told. I think that in some sense, I feel bad for the showrunners, they they started this show as an adaptation, and then it became their own thing. And, you know, George R. R. Martin basically bequeathed the story to them when, he, when they passed the books. And he outlined, I think he outlined everything that was supposed to happen for them, but just in broad strokes. And they had to fill in the gaps, and sometimes they did that successfully, and sometimes they didn't. And the end did feel very rushed, and in part because it was rushed. It was six episodes, they were extended, but still it felt rushed in part because th- there weren't those supporting scenes to build up to things. It would have been nice to see more leading up to Daenerys' turn, even though I think her turn was fine as the ultimate heel in the story. I just wanted to see a little bit more of those trigger points. I think the reaction, the missing reaction to the Starks, that Jon was actually a Targaryen, we needed to see that reaction. There's so many little things that could have happened just to enhance things. And I think that's part of the problem too is that I know people didn't like the lighting in the big uh, battle with the Night King and that whole episode, but that was a spectacular. There were so many spectacular visuals in that episode. They really handled the big budget stuff well, in my opinion. It's little things that could have made things so much better, and I think that's part of the frustration too. It's not with the big CGI. It's with the little things that could have happened uh, just with a scene with two or three people.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I actually went back and rewatched that episode. Um, with my family, and and uh, after you know after it had initially aired, and one of the things that I noticed is that that episode looks so much better when you're not streaming it um, on a on a channel that probably millions of other people are also trying to stream at the same time. Personally, that was uh, harming my experience. There were a lot of compression artifacts when I was streaming it, and when I actually watched it on you know a nice big TV, well after the show had aired, and and probably people weren't watching it as much. Um, it looked just 100% better and you could see the epic battle scene and, and the, the lighting issues went away. Um, so probably they could have or should have or, or maybe um, now they will certainly be able to foresee issues like that. But uh, I'm sure when you're developing this historically popular show um, and you have this vision in mind, there are unforeseen things that come up like what happens when 15 million people try and stream the same program uh, from the same source at the same time that they just they couldn't they couldn't anticipate that, um, so I do feel bad for them too. I mean, <clears throat> they they really did create one of the best TV shows of all time, and it's getting marred by this final season. But I, I hope that people don't forget that for seven seasons, it was it was really excellent entertainment and a lot of fun. And uh, I mean, truly one of the one of the greatest pieces of programming people had ever put together. So. Um, I still, I still think that they're they're good at what they do, but um, you know maybe they, they just rushed it too much, and there were too many things that they couldn't anticipate in this fi- in this finale.
0: I completely would agree with that, and you've been listening to Rob Arthur. Rob is a writer at Baseball Prospectus. You can give him a follow on Twitter at no underscore little underscore plans. Rob, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today.
1: I appreciate you having me on.